0: And I will have to say that I, right at the moment, I have some Bible jealousy I'm using John's extra large print Bible. And my goodness, I don't even need my glasses. <laughs> it is very exciting. So Genesis chapter 37, starting in verse 1. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph when 17 years of age was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah his father's wives and Joseph brought back an evil report about them to their father Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a very colored tunic and his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers So they hated him and could not speak to him in peace. Then Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers. So they hated him even more. And he said to them, please listen to this dream, which I have had. Indeed, behold, we were binding sheaves in the field and behold, my sheaf rose up and also stood upright and behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brothers said to him, are you really going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he had still another dream and recounted it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've had still another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. And he recounted it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? shall i and your mother and your brothers really come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground and his brothers were jealous of him but his father kept saying but his father kept kept the saying in his mind this is the word of god let me pray before we get started glorious heavenly righteous great magnificent god Thank you so much for this word that you have given to us, this word that has seemingly come from the past that we may learn about your ways, your character, your redemptive plan, all for your glory. Please be with us through this service, through the message. Give John the strength to give it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
1: So John was referencing the Bible that's up here it 's a giant print. Some of you can probably read it from where you sit. When we got these um, we got them at the shepherd's conference when they first came out. Oh no no, no, that's not this one that's this is the preacher's Bible. never mind anyway uh, when the pre- when the preacher 's Bible first came out, we got them at Shep Shepcon um, I think Justin McCollum and I were flying together and uh TSA was stopping everyone as they went through and then you could hear them on the backside saying it's just another one of those bibles because they couldn't scan through the bibles they were so so thick Um, but that's not this so this story that we're going to study this morning in in genesis chapter 37 on the surface could seem like it's a story um, about the characters about joseph perhaps or or even Abraham, or or maybe the patriarchs altogether, but it's not. It's a story about God. This is a story that thousands of years later allows us to see who God is, to see His faithfulness, and to encourage our faith. Um, in fact, this story of Joseph is so important for highlighting who God is. Um, will be here from Genesis chapter 37 all the way through to Genesis chapter 50. So 13 chapters will stay with this story. And there's a lot to it. It's very rich. Will not run dry in its interest. And this is so that we will follow God's purpose for the text and see him as sovereign and see him working through the otherwise impossible. And I love that so much about Genesis and Exodus is you see, it's, it's almost as if, it's almost as if, with his prophecy, God would seem to be handicapped. And so I mean that in a way that, that when I was a kid, I, I know what painting yourself into a corner means. So I grew up in South Florida, and I had this fort, and it was mine. It was up on stilts. It was made of wood. It was really cool. It was far away from the house. And one time I had some extra paint, um, which means someone had some extra paint, and I took it. And so I I painted the floor and I literally started at the front door thinking nothing of it and worked backwards until I found myself in the corner and I thought, oh, shoot. Um, And so it was kind of funny because, you know, we we went back to that and I could almost see where my smeary footprints were uh, in the in the floor of that fort. It would seem as though in so many of these stories, that's exactly what happens. Uh, We'll see later in the Exodus that that. God has the people led by a a pillar of, of smoke by day, a pillar of fire by night, and leads them up to a massive body of water with an entire national army chasing behind them. It would seem like this is impossible. And that's the point. Because for God, nothing is impossible. And so we would do well to sink these stories down deep in ourselves. And so this morning, what we see in these first 11 verses of Genesis chapter 7 is God setting up the seemingly impossible we'll see these prophecies that foretell, and I say foretell because they don't foretell. God doesn't tell what's going to happen. God causes the future to occur according to his will. That's an important distinction. God doesn't wind up everything like a watchmaker and let it wind and try to control inside the chaos. Chaos happens around his will. In fact, sometimes God uses, and uh, uh, Pastor John Piper wrote a book that I think is a fantastic book, and I'll probably leak little bits of it in here by an accident, as I used to say. Um, he wrote a book called Respectable Sins. No. Was that him, Respectable Sins? I'm sorry, I'm throwing under the bus. Do you remember? Was he Respectable Sins? Maybe Respectable Sins was C.J. Mahaney. Um, anyway, get the title later. Um, it's, it's basically a Spectacular Sins, how God uses spectacularly sinful things, and his will flows through that. So prime example would be Christ on the cross, that God satisfies his wrath against sin by the willing actions of sinful people who want to try Christ, who want to free Barabbas instead of Christ, who want to see him whipped and beaten, who want to see him hang on a cross and who want to see him die, but the grave could not hold him, praise the Lord. In a sense, we see another one of those starting today in this story of Joseph. And we'll see God, in a sense, painted in a corner, but we know he can't be. And that's the amazing thing for us. Speaking to those of us this morning who are believers, if you're not a believer, this isn't true for you. But for those of us who are believers, who know by faith that this word is God's infallible, inerrant word. Big 25-cent words make you sound smart, but they need to mean something. It's infallible. It's not wrong. It can't be wrong because it's the word of God. And so it's also without error. So when we come to passages sometimes that feel a little sticky and hard to understand, we either understand that God hasn't told us enough to know, and sometimes we're trying to read inside the lines things that aren't there, or the text resolves itself somehow, we need to study further. So let me let me demonstrate perhaps a little bit of, of how God has talked about this patriarchal line. How the Messiah will come through this line and and how it seems almost impossible if you pay attention to the story. So if we we think back a little bit to Genesis chapter 12. um, In Genesis chapter 12, in the first few verses, we have God is calling faithful Abraham. And he calls him to go to a land and he says, I'm going to make you a nation. I'm going to make you, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a nation. And that becomes important. This concept of Abraham as a nation. I'm going to bless you, those that are friendly towards you, those that bless you, I'll bless them as well. But I'm going to curse any of those who dishonor you. And in Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Why? Why would all the families of the earth be blessed in Abraham? Because through that line comes Christ. And by Christ, salvation becomes available to all. And that's why Jesus himself would would say, it's better that I go, and the helper come. Christ ministers locally in a physical body to a few. The helper comes, the Holy Spirit descends, and He is in each and every believer. This Holy Spirit's ministry, in fact, is to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And if you're a believer today, it's because the Holy Spirit convicted you of your sin, allowed you to see the truth of the gospel, and you then responded the only right way. It's an act of God. In Abraham, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. So that was prophesy in Genesis chapter 12. But God declared that he would defeat the enemy back in Genesis chapter 3. It's the Proto-Evangelion, if you want to sound smart. The pre-gospel, where there's this conversation between the serpent and God. In Genesis chapter 15, verses 12 through 17... Um, Abraham, now Abram, knows that his offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs, um, that there will be servants there, and that they will be afflicted for 400 years. 400 years. But that God will bring judgment on the nation, and afterwards they'll come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Very specific God is being with this. Foretelling with this prophecy. Genesis chapter 15 verses 10 through 17. Or 12 through 17. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, "'Dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. "'Then the Lord said to Abram, "'Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners "'in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, "'and they will be afflicted for 400 years, "'but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, "'and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions.'" As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites, not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between those pieces. God entered into a unilateral covenant while Abraham was incapacitated, but aware of what was happening. God says that there's going to be this 400-year period where they would be enslaved. And what we're going to see a little bit this morning in these first 11 verses is how he begins to put that plan in place in Joseph. How they will be in proximity to the Egyptians, how they will come into this slavery, and we'll see what God has foretold comes through Difficult and confusing circumstances. And if you put yourself in the position of these people knowing that God's sovereign will is occurring, knowing that they are acting out in the ways that they desire to act out, but that God is accomplishing his will through this, it is an incredible story about God. This is not a story about Joseph. This is not a story about Abraham. This is all about God. It encourages our faith to know that. Now there's, I mentioned earlier that the word is infallible and inerrant. There are mentions of this period being 430 years. There are, we just read that the prophecy said it would be 400 years. Two main schools of thought in that. Uh, One school of thought, which I think is a little bit soft, is that Moses perhaps is speaking in generalities 400 years. So if I was to tell you I am, I'm you know 40 years old, and then later you come to find that I'm 44 years old, was I lying? No, I was speaking in generalities, is one school of thought. Another is that at the time that this was told, Abraham was 75 years old, which is 430 years before the, before the Exodus. And so at the time in Galatians 3, 17, well, Genesis 21, 9, Actually, let's just go there. Look, look with me at Genesis 21.9. And good news for you, I can flip and I can even see the pages, so this is fantastic. Genesis chapter 21, starting in verse 8. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham laughing in jest. Therefore, she said to Abraham, drive out this maidservant and her son. The son of this maidservant shall not be an heir with my son, with Isaac. And the matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. So God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the boy and your maidservant. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her voice. For through Isaac, your seed shall be named. And of the son of the maidservant, I will make a nation also because he is your seed. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder and gave her the child and sent her away. So she went and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. Now, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. So if we flip forward to Galatians. As Pastor John said this morning, that is right of where you are now. Uh, Galatians chapter 4. We start in verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the servant and one by the free woman. So now we're starting to really draw on this idea of one was slave, one was free. Both are in Abraham. The one by the servant woman had been born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was through the promise. This is spoken with allegory for these two women are two covenants. One from Mount Sinai, bearing children into slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai into Arabia and corresponds with the present Jerusalem. So the other resolution is that here at 75 years of age, 430 years before the Exodus, the relative of Abraham, Israel, goes into slavery in this moment. That's, that's the other resolution for this. I, I just rest that there will be a 400-year exodus, and that is exactly what will happen. So the question becomes, how will God accomplish these specific things? And so the answer is that over the next 13 chapters, we will read all about that. There is so much resolution to the prophecy from earlier in Genesis through these next 13 chapters that it is absolutely amazing, and and I really hope that you— Go home and, and chase rabbit trails. Study this on your own. Really dig into this. The word is inexhaustible. It describes itself as two-edged sword, um, plumbing to the depths of our soul and spirit, our bone and marrow. What we should be is encouraged, knowing that God is the same today as he was with Abraham and Joseph and Jacob. And so for me, my anchor text around the encouragement of who God is, Romans 12, 2, which reads, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. When we see the will of God flowing through these near impossible circumstances, when we see God exacting his will on people who Go against the very thing that you would think they would want. Think of Esau choosing a land and leaving his brother to have the promise. We should be encouraged to know that by not conforming to the world and by transforming our mind, by testing, we can discern that same will of God in our own lives. And we should be encouraged to know that God is good. His will is perfect and his will is good. Even when the circumstances around us seem terrible, when we trust deep in our core that God's will is good, that if he's for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? What circumstance can be against us? Nothing. Nothing at all. And it's all about trusting that that is true. It's, it's faith. It's the trust of those those things unseen. And it's not that we trust blindly, we have an entire council of his word that shows us from beginning to end, impossible circumstances, his will running through it, and accomplishing global salvation through these kinds of circumstances that people lived in these moments. And so when we come up to trials and temptations and, and various fiery trials, we can be encouraged knowing that God's in it. He's either allowed it or he's caused it. And that's the mature Christian position. And I mean that when, the, when what feels like the worst of circumstances is occurring around you, when someone who you love's health is affected, when someone gets a cancer diagnosis, when a child, of, uh, God forbid, when a child becomes sick or a child becomes ill or a child dies, a sovereign God is in that. That is the mature Christian position. And so let's start With Joseph and see God's sovereign hand over this story. Genesis chapter 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, the land of Canaan. Excuse me for a second. Moses is reiterating this story of the, the, the sojournings in the land um, so that we would understand God's involvement in the selection of the land. Who lives where is not incidental. Uh, we've seen uh, several times in the book of Genesis already where there has been a decision about the land. Who's going to live where? Who's going to possess what? And by what means will those people live? We see Esau peel off from his brother. He, uh, he starts off kings and and nations and takeovers. His brother lives as a sojourner, as God has said that he would. And then in verse two of Genesis thirty-seven, there's an there's an odd thing, and I think an odd mention. If you catch it, it says, "These are the generations of Jacob." And then it does not go on to tell you the generations of Jacob. You know, when we looked last week at Genesis uh, chapter 36, it starts out, now these are the generations of Esau, and it does exactly what we would think it do. It lists the generations, it lists people, it lists children, it lists parents, and it goes through and it tells you the generations. Genesis chapter 37 doesn't do that. It says, these are the generations of Jacob, and then it doesn't tell you the generations of Jacob. And I think what it does is it tees up this story that will conclude in Genesis chapter 50. It tees up this long story that is designed to show us the sovereignty of God in the patriarchal line. This is the line through which God will bring the Messiah, and it almost seems like he's painted in a corner. Joseph, when he was 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpha, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back an evil report about them to their father. Um, So these wives if you remember back uh Bilhah and zilpha are taken as abraham's wives they're not daughters of laban they aren't the daughters that he was intending to marry well weren't the daughter he was intending to marry and incidentally ended up marrying the other but these are handmaidens these are servants um and, and so that means the brothers that he's out with are the brothers of these two women so it's dan and nephali gad and asher are all out in the field together um we know that uh uh, Joseph is the second youngest, right? He's not the youngest. He's the second youngest, which I think is also awesome. Because it's not like, it's not like the, the line came through the oldest like you would expect. Or, oh, it's the exact opposite. It came through the youngest. Nope, second youngest. Why? Because God chose that he would be in the patriarchal line. Because God chose. And that is so important for us to get down in the, in the bowels and the guts of who we are, is that God chooses because he chooses. Not for some reason that we can rationalize per se. Not that we can look at the facts and, and validate, yes, God, you made the right decision. But that we learn to accept by faith that God made the right decision because he made it. Not because he demonstrated it to us. And that's important when we get into circumstances in our lives where we don't understand the options and we have to choose one. Sometimes we do that by faith. Sometimes we do it slowly, in prayer, and in supplication, and then we trust God with a decision. Learning that he is sovereign over all things is freeing. And we see it in this story. So they're out in the field, they're... they're They're taking care of the livestock. This 17-year-old young man perhaps is learning from his older brothers, but we see that he brings back this report. Um, Now, the Scripture doesn't tell us what happened, right? There's plenty of people guessing about what may have happened with the brothers in the field, but I would suggest you don't even entertain that because the Scripture doesn't tell us what they did. It says it brought back an evil report. That's what he brought back. We don't know what they were doing. We don't know what was happening in the field. We know that he brings back a report to his dad. And what this is starting to do is Moses is really highlighting for us the tempo and the temperature of the relationship between the brothers. Um, maybe, maybe you remember back to your days in school, sometimes the teacher would leave a room. I don't know if this even happens anymore. They may have robot teachers that don't have to leave rooms, you know, or maybe kids sit in front of TV screens. I don't even know. Um, but, The teacher would have to leave the room and they would take one person in the room to write down anyone's name who talked or did something wrong while they were gone. Usually, that was Justin Shaver. That would take down everybody's names on the chalkboard. And usually, that person was disliked at the end of the day, right? Because they're telling on everybody in the classroom. They're telling the teacher. They're probably kind of excited to tell the teacher. It doesn't create, it doesn't engender warm feelings and great relationships among the tattletale and the people who just wanted to talk because the teacher wasn't in the room. Now, what about brothers? Go out to the field, working, and and you get back, and here comes 17-year-old Joseph running up to daddy, telling him what happened in the field with the brothers. Hey, let me let you know real quick what my brothers were doing. Hey, have a seat. It's a long story. I have an evil report. So, Moses is allowing us to see the kinds of things that are happening to cause friction. Now, we have to remember that God's in the middle of all this. This friction becomes necessary. This friction will cause the rest of the story that will bring about Egyptian slavery that will satisfy his prophecy. That will make everything occur exactly as he said he would. But remember, all the way in the beginning, he's involved in all of it. God is causing it to occur. And people are making free choices along the way, according to God's will. So he brings an evil, or he brings an evil report about his brothers to the dad. Now, Abraham had Joseph 90-some years old, the, the, the child of his old age. Um, maybe he was kind of treated like the baby maybe some of you are from a large family or a family with siblings and you know one of them's the baby no matter what right they can't do anything wrong the, frankly parents are just exhausted at some point so they don't even care anymore right you have a little kid and you don't want them to roll down the stairs or do something man by the time you get to three four five and beyond that kid's feral they raise themselves you have no idea if they've bathed you have, no, you have no idea. They're just doing their own thing. They eat because they fend for themselves. They find crumbs on the floor. They're, they're feeding themselves on scraps. It gets weird for them. But the baby, the parents are so tired of enforcing rules, so tired of setting rules, they already know kids aren't going to follow the rules. So they don't even give them anymore, right? They just treat them really well is how kids perceive it. Um, it's funny, around in my house, around the dinner table, hearing the kids talk about who they think the favorite is, We have a very apparent favorite in this family, and again, it's going to cause friction, and God's causing it, because this friction is important to all that he's going to cause to occur. That's why I say this is not a story about Joseph. This is a story about God, and you'll see him every step of the way. So there's definitely a favorite in the family. There's the baby, even though he's not the youngest, he's still the baby, Um. In verses 3 and 4, we see that his, his father made this coat for him, right? And may, maybe, you, maybe you've seen movies or heard stories about it. Maybe you've seen a play, Joseph and the Technicolor Coat, that kind of thing. Maybe you've seen the VeggieTales version where somehow a, 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 a long cylindrical you know, vegetable animal needs clothes. Um, forget all that. We don't really know what this coat was, right? You can make guesses. You can say probably they had a square with a hole cut out and they slipped their head into it and maybe his had sleeves so it was super special maybe it had lots of threads put in it somehow to them it signified that he was very important to the father and that's all we need to know that he like physically wore this garment that reminded his siblings that dad likes me more than you now maybe you're a young sibling from a large family and you know what that means you got the third war third wear of underwear you got the pair with the holes in them And then the one below you got what? All the new stuff, right? That's what number four gets. The middle child knows who they are. They get all that worn out stuff. So he gets this coat that basically to everyone around him signifies, my dad likes me more than the rest of these knuckleheads. Goes out to the field, tells on his siblings. He is not creating a warm, fuzzy environment for himself with his brothers and that will continue to become apparent in this story, but it's important that we see how and why. It's actually amazing, I think, that Abraham picks a favorite uh, because maybe you remember back, Abraham's dad also had a favorite, and apparently he didn't learn a parenting lesson from what that causes among siblings, among brothers. Abraham was the favorite of dad, and he's always the favorite of mom. Sorry, guys. The mind is going here. So we see how that went, how picking of favorites went, and we see God's sovereign hand superseding, overseeing, being over top of all of these events. Um, I think last week I mentioned, you know, I I try try to caution my mind against saying stories because I think that moves us into the realm of, of thinking, the, forgetting that these are real people, real events, real stories, real families, real emotions, and real tensions. Because when we understand those things, we can, we can empathize with these characters, and we can understand the story a little bit better. When we can think about sibling rivalries, when we can step back and see all the facts and know them all, we can go, oh, well, why, you know, why would you guys be so? Just don't do that. But when you're in the thick of it, we only know ourselves, right? When, we, when we're when we reading the scriptures, we, we're seeing it from the perspective of God, perhaps, um, in the purpose and plan of God. And so it's very easy to see the right direction when you're only in yourself and in your own head, when you think about circumstances the way you do because you're locked into your own thoughts and your own minds. Um, that's why sometimes we interact with people and we think we know their purposes for the reason they do something, and then we treat them as if that's true, right? Um, I know I do. You probably do too. I think that's a part of being who human. We assume someone's purpose in something. And so we're seeing that happen, and it's causing a lot of friction, a lot of difficulty. So we've got this second youngest brother wearing a coat, tattling on his family, and he's going to make it harder on himself as well. And I think again, God is in that. But friction's building, and it's all working to fulfill the will of God, the purposes of God. Um, we'll see towards the end of verse 4 that his brothers hated him completely. They, they, in fact, it says that they, they couldn't even speak peaceably with him. They couldn't even just have a conversation about the weather. So, how's the weather? And now they're just, they're just angry, just maybe hearing his voice. They hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. They couldn't. They couldn't even make themselves. They couldn't even see this person without, without these feelings welling up that were described biblically as hatred. This is more than just a sibling rivalry, more than, you know, hanging your little brother from the doorknob by his underwear, more than noogies, you know, the normal kinds of things. I don't even know if any of that happens anymore. You know, the world's, the world's changed. Everybody's probably really nice. Uh, siblings are probably really nice now they just apologize to one another all the time and you know uh, check in on each other's feelings but uh, we used to be really mean and that's what's happening here but this is more than that his brothers hated him so much that they couldn't speak peacefully to him which is interesting because in the future when Jesus is is speaking in Matthew 5 he uses a similar kind of event brothers hating brothers to illustrate the law in Matthew chapter 5, he's talking to people, and, and he, he says, um, you shall not murder. And most people are like, that's like, you know, what did, what did the Ray Comfort say? Like, that's the one that people think they're getting away with, right? Shall not murder. I'm following that law. But Jesus gives clarification in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Check, feeling good, verse 22. But, uh oh, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Why? Because the root of this kind of anger is the same root of murder. God is not impressed that I become infuriated, sinfully infuriated, and angry with my brother, but I don't choke him until his little body stops wiggling. God, that is is sin. The act of squeezing him until he stops moving is certainly sinful. The act of having that hatred in my heart is sin. It's the result of who I am as a person. I have that in me. God is not like that. God doesn't have that kind of just unbiased hatred. God exacts judgment. I exact hatred and anger. That's a part of the sin nature that is in us. God acts righteously. We don't. Even our most righteous act, Scripture would say, is like a filthy rag before God. That same kind of teaching is is reiterated in 1 John. In uh, several other places, frankly, but I, you know, if I'm ever going to point to a principle that's a big, biblical principle, I want to point to it in at least two instances, because um, w- one of the, one of the tenets of Scripture is that there's there's no doctrine, no no matter of doctrine that's only found in a single instance of Scripture. That's part that's to keep us safe. But the second instance being First John chapter four, verses seventeen through twenty one. By this is love perfected with us. He has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen, and this commandment we have from Him: whoever loves God must also love his brother. That's striking, because some of us probably feel a hatred in our heart towards someone, maybe even right now. Th- these kinds of of discourse should be enough for us to say, God, please just allow me to eviscerate any feelings towards hatred towards a brother or sister that I have in me I don't want to be this I'm I am happy to subject myself to the lordship of Christ and 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 give away hand away burn up any evil feelings I have towards people but selfishly and sinfully we want to keep it it's it's something about it chews us up right Um, it it chews us up inside but we still love it because we're our sin nature. Uh, Pastor John Nicholas quoted my life verse this morning, Jeremiah seventeen nine, that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? That is to say, even we can't understand sometimes our own moral confusions. We can't rationalize our way towards good. We really think we can, though. We think we can rationalize our way towards good. The whole world around us is trying to rationalize. Have you ever read something that's medical and involves sex recently? And by sex, I mean sex like gender. It is the most confusing mess to read because they can't just say man or woman. They have to describe it nine ways from Sunday. It'll say someone born with this part. Well, yes, I knew what you meant when you said man. I 100% was on board with you, but when you started confusing it with all this other stuff, I didn't get it anymore. This is what the world does. It tries to grope in the dark for truth, and it can't find it because the heart is deceitful and wicked. It moves towards what it wants. It moves towards what it desires, not towards truth. We don't drift towards the truth of a good, righteous, holy God. We drift towards disgusting, vile, wretched sin. That's all that we can choose. I would John 3 I thought I was addressing you, I wasn't. John 3:16 Um for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's great. Does anybody's Bible stop there? No. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Still good. But nobody's Bible stops there. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Okay, less good, but still okay. And nobody's Bible stops there. If it does, let's get you a new one. Verse 19. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. This is everyone in their natural state loving darkness more than light. And so without God, when people without god people of the world seek for truth they find more darkness more evil more wickedness more confusion and that's what we see in the world around us that's what humanity has always seen in the world around we know our time right now and we think this is the craziest most buckwild time ever it isn't it's always been like this just in different iterations i mean if you really think things were great in the 50s go back they were insane it really wasn't great. It was just crazy different because people were involved. And that's how I can say that in all authority because I know all of their hearts. Do I know them personally? No, but I know that they were deceitful and wicked. And I know they weren't moving necessarily towards good on their own. And so this brotherly hatred, why, why am I bringing all this up? Because this brotherly hatred, God is going to use it to accomplish his good will even though it's sinful. They're choosing for what they want. They're, they they want to hate their brother, right? They want to. They're reacting of their natural state to these situations, to these things. That's what they desire. That's what they want. And God will use it to accomplish His will. That is what sovereignty looks like. When God forth tells that something will be, it will be. And so these brothers take a sinful position, a sinful reaction to Joseph, and and. Watch as this continues on because I believe Moses says this next verse, the the, the first word of the next verse is specifically stated this way. Verse 5, now Joseph had a dream. I think it's like he's just poking Moses and telling the story. He's poking and poking and poking. Now, Joseph had a dream. He's keeping the tempo up on all of these instances of annoyance to the brother, to the father in this situation. He's creating this environment that's ready to well up and explode. Now, Joseph had a dream. On top of the coat, on top of telling dad what's happening in the field when the boys are out in the locker room. On on top of of the the interactions and the frictions that are happening with the brothers, they can't even even talk to him without hating him. Now he has a dream. Guess where the dream come from? God. And guess what the dream's going to do? Not smooth anything over. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. God was the author of the dream. The dream caused the brothers to hate him even more. I don't know how you hate someone even more than not even be able to speak peaceably to them and already hating them. But they went to stage two, DEFCON 4. But there's a second dream too. I mean, just think about that. This is, this is jumping off the pit. God is causing all of this. This isn't about joseph or abraham or the brothers or the crazy marriages or this is all about what god is doing why so that we can step back we can see the story and we can say wow he accomplished all that through sinful people he is in sovereign control over everything what he says will be there is nothing that occurs that is outside of the sovereign control of god if he desires to stop it it stops book of Colossians tells us everything is held together by the power of his word. Christ himself, the active agent of creation, through whom all things that exist were actively created, holds everything together. There doesn't even have to be a cataclysmic explosion. He just stops, and it's not. It is because he said. He stops, and it's not. Sovereignty is freeing. Sovereignty lets me take the things that I do with my sinful little dirt creature heart that loves darkness, knowing that God is sovereign allows me to kill any desire in myself or be willing to splay any desire in myself before a holy righteous God who covers me in the righteousness of Christ and and prayerfully walk away from that decision, that thought or that situation because I know God is sovereign over it and Christ is. Lord and King. I would commend Pastor John Nicholas' message this morning, talking about the way that we treat royalty, not us, because we're Americans. We treat royalty by laughing at them, rightly. However, the illustration is great in that Christ is Lord and King over our lives. Even though we live in a, whatever this system is we live in, Christ is our Lord and King. Joseph had a dream. When he told it to the brothers, they hated him even more. Verse 6, he said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were standing, finding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brother said to him, you know, I have to wonder, like, in this moment, did he know had he really not picked up, because he becomes the interpreter of dreams later, right, when we read into the future, so maybe he picked up on that gift a little bit along the way. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us, or indeed rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. <laughs> not just that he had the dream, but the way he spoke was annoying. You see what Moses is doing. He is amping it up, man. This thing is vibrating. Where it's something's going to break soon. Did he understand the dream? Don't know. Um, Again, if he didn't, that is God's restraining grace that He would tell that dream. Now, if you if you know me, you know I have these melatonin fueled field of chaos dreams, and I love telling those stories. Don't know what's going on in this guy's life. I, I don't know, but I do know that Moses is giving the feel of how things are going at home. And I think it's important to remember verse 4 before you read verse 5. Sa- sandwich them together, right? We chunk it up as we go through, but, but, but look at them together. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. I mean, you you see what's happening here, right? When verse four ends, his father had given him this very visual picture of his favored love for this son, perhaps the recipient of the bulk of the inheritance. Certainly, he was treated well in the home. Joseph brings reports about them from the field, what they were doing when no one was around, and he tells his dad they can't even speak peaceably to him at this point. Moses picks up and says so that we would know the anger and the tension arising that Joseph had a dream. And it's almost too much. It's almost too perfect and too tempting for the brothers not to act in sin. His dream is pretty transparent, but at least he didn't speak against his dad yet, right? Verse 9, then he dreamed another dream, and he told it to his brothers. And he said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. (laughs) <laughs> this guy is still telling dreams. Um, you have to wonder how much time has elapsed here. Don't know, right? Was this like tomorrow? Or did he have a nap and he woke up and he told him that same evening? But I just love that he's still telling dreams, man. I love this kid. I'm, I'm in his court. He dreamed another dream and he told it to his brothers. And he said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. I don't know about you, but when I hear that, I just think of Mary. um, hearing, Hearing of the Jesus to come. His father's rebuking him. Joe, this is getting to be way too much. The brothers are jealous, and it's just heaping, heaping dreams, heaping circumstances to cause anger, to cause friction. The tempo is high in the patriarch's home. Things are reaching a boiling point. The brothers are hate-filled, and the brothers are jealous. Um, Now, I think, just to step out of this story for a, a wee moment, if you will, It's important for us to be able to recognize these kinds of things in ourselves. Um, I think perhaps, I hope perhaps, I hope not to this degree, but we can find the beginnings of this in ourselves sometimes as we interact with one another. Um, I know for myself I need to get a lot of rest, which is funny because I sleep badly, but I go to bed early, right? Uh, I think I was in bed last night at 8.30 p.m., so, if I haven't read you bad yet, I apologize. I was asleep. Proverbs chapter ten, verse twelve: Hatred stirs up strife, but love conquers all offenses. Hatred stirs up strife. And guess who gets impacted by strife? Both parties. Love covers all offenses. Um, I used to work with this guy. His name was Lou Demars. And I I called it the Ludomar's principle. He used to really frustrate me because I would tell him something that someone had done and I really just wanted to talk about how terrible that person was with him. And he would always come back with the reason that it probably didn't have a terrible motive. And I would always be like, dude, what? Obviously it had a terrible motive. Like, why would you make up this version for them? And I came to realize over time that what he would do is he always had the excuse for someone else. And it wasn't for them, it was for himself. That's a great principle, right? Because we, like I said earlier, we get caught up in our own minds. We start thinking the per- the reason the person did this is because they think this, or because they think that, or because of this. And if we let that go, if we shove that to the side, sometimes we're able to not stir up strife and allow love to cover offenses. Now, for the believer, rather than making up some excuse, we can know that this is this is someone who is either caught up in sin, and they're doing exactly what I would do as well, because I am sinful. Or this is someone who is living in the sovereign plan of God, and perhaps they don't have evil intentions for it, but either way, I'm going to set it aside in the name of love. Imagine if we acted that out in our lives. How many circumstances from even last week, last month, or last year would that smooth over and not stir up the strife? And I don't know about you, but I like to live at peace, which is because I'm lazy and I like comfort. Same reason I want to die in my sleep. Not like struggling, like being strangled or having a pillow shoved over my face, like peacefully, just kind of I fade out one day. You know, I don't want to have some long struggling end, drawn out pain or anything like that. I just want to kind of go. I want to live that way too. So I don't want to stir up strife. And so what that means is I can cover offenses. Now, the brothers could have done that, right? They could have just said, oh, that's just Joe, you know. But remember, God is in the middle. These dreams don't just come to him by melatonin. These are God's working out his will through the sinful characters of people, sinful natures of people. James chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. I love that it says jealousy and selfish ambition. So frequently, selfish ambition plays out in our lives. Perhaps when we're younger and we're trying to get somewhere, but even in other areas, and we don't even sometimes recognize it as selfish ambition. Um, Ambition can be all kinds of different things, but it's helpful to know we're capable of it, and so to be looking for it in ourselves, in our daily lives. This is part of the Christian life, right? I say this not because this is um, necessarily... Why this is here? I say this because there are principles for Christian living that we can see played out in these characters, and we see the kinds of things that happen when we don't live biblically. So the brothers are all swallowed up in their feelings; they're angry, they're frustrated, they're jealous, and by grace, God is going to use that to bring about His will. And His will is to—and this is this is why this is so amazing—because we can lose sight of what God is doing. His will is to bring a line of patriarchs preserved by him, fulfilling Genesis 3.15, to conquer the enemy, to conquer the serpent. Um, And and it's for these reasons that, that we, when Pastor John Nichols and I sat down to look at studying the book of Genesis, the way that we titled this study was authority, because that's what we see as God's authority over absolutely everything. And because he's sovereign is why he has and rightfully exercises that authority over all things. His sovereign command, his will, his righteousness is acting through fallen, sinful creatures to bring about his good will. And that's why Romans 12.2 gets exploded when we understand these stories. Knowing that we cannot be conformed to the world but be transformed by the renewing of our mind that by testing we can discern that same will of God and know what is good, and acceptable, and perfect, and we can trust God with it. Because in Joseph, we see that God's will is good, and it brings about his sovereign plan. This is a story about Joseph, but more than that, it's about God and his sovereignty. So I pray that we see that. I pray that we're encouraged by God's good grace, and I pray that we can begin to discern the will of God, knowing and aligning to his will, knowing that aligning to his will opens us up to all that is good and all that is acceptable and all that is perfect. That's right. God, we thank you that you have dem- devoted so much space in your word to this story that just jumps off the page celebrating your grace and your sovereignty, and we, we're thankful for both. Um, God, we're thankful that you're both sovereign and full of grace, that that we can be chosen by you according to your will, that we can know you, that we can rest secure knowing that we are redeemed by Christ, God. And would that make us be a people who simply wanna go out and tell more people about Christ because it's the ultimate freedom and it's by your choice and your will. God, we love you, we praise you. It's in Jesus' precious, holy and awesome name we pray, amen.